What is that little extra thing that makes the ordinary extraordinary? I believe it is the presence of God. At Christmas, God came into our ordinary world in the form of a child. In this season of hope and anticipation, as we eagerly await Christ's birth and Christ's return, God is still at work in and through the ordinary stuff of life. This Advent season at Second Presbyterian, we will begin a sermon series titled Advent in Plain Sight. Roughly based on a devotional written by Jill Duffield, we will connect everyday objects with the biblical text and find holy meaning and holy moments. We hope this Advent season will be an extraordinary one that allows us all to see God in and through ordinary things. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask that in the word as it is read, proclaimed, and enacted in sacrament, that the living word made flesh will find a cradle within our hearts and lives. Amen. I look forward to returning to the Dominican Republic with this year's medical construction team. The pandemic has delayed this return by two years. I'm anxious to see the progress that has been made on one of the other projects of our Mission Build campaign, the building of a hospital to replace the clinic that sits in a floodplain. That hospital is almost complete, so it's going to be great to see all that has been accomplished, though it still needs equipping and furnishing. What has not begun, though, is the construction of the new guest house to replace the old guest house, which also sits in the floodplain. So right now, the new guest house is only a dream. But many of us who have been on this trip, well, we've just felt free to dream what this guest house might be. And we think that the people who are planning it really need to listen to us because it really needs to be put on the backside of the property. Because the view over the south wall is this spectacular view. Farmland leading to mountains covered with trees. We imagine that this guest house would have a nice rooftop sitting area where in the cooler temperatures, that's important in the Dominican Republic, in the cooler temperatures of dawn or dusk, we can sit and relax and enjoy watching the sun rise to the left or set to the right. It's the trees that make the mountains so beautiful. In fact, it really is the trees or lack of them that define the island itself and its history. Many who have gone on these mission trips have seen the view that I'll describe to you. You look down on the island of Hispaniola and you see that one half, the Dominican half, is forested and the other half, the Haitian half, is denuded. Haiti is bare from trees being cut and used as fuel. Results of grinding poverty, corrupt government, and poor land management. And so, on this island, trees are a symbol of life and potential. Their presence feels like potential. Their absence looks like judgment. We can understand that. I mean, we enjoy how trees add beauty, texture, and color to landscapes. We enjoy their shade, and we know that forests are the lungs of the world with their capacity to absorb carbon dioxide and release oxygen. Still, I doubt that we can appreciate how much a tree was a metaphor for life, as did the writers of Scripture, 
such as the seer of Proverbs and Jesus who spoke of the tree of life and its fruit. Especially most Americans who, when we hear trees, we think of the dominant trees of our country, maple, oak, fir, pine, even aspen. But not so in Israel. It is amazing how much of what is served in Israel is plucked from trees. Pomegranates, figs, apples, pears, apricots, plums, almonds, and of course, olives. If in biblical times bread was thought to sustain life, it's the fruit of trees that added so much flavor. Every person who has ever lived in Israel knows what it is to bite the fig and find if it is sweet or if it is not, or the olive and find it dry or flush with oil, or the apple and find it sweet or sour or bitter. So in hearing biblical poets and prophets speak of trees, I want you to think of fruit-bearing trees with fruit that delights or disappoints. So with that mind frame, listen to just one of the many passages that uses the metaphor of trees. Listen to the poem of Psalm 1. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of God and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. My other passage printed in the bulletin is from Isaiah. It was read by Ben last week. In his sermon, he focused on images of peace, particularly the image of the lion lying with the lamb. I'm going to focus on a different image in the passage contained in the first verse. And in fact, right now, I'll only read that first verse. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The word of the Lord. Psalm 1 speaks to the kind of life that we, well, when we're at our best anyway, the kind of life that we would like to have, a life that is grounded in God's word. Like a tree beside the stream, we want to absorb what it is that God has to offer us so that it becomes a part of us. We want to draw into our very selves the living water of God's love and grace so that it becomes a part of who we are. Can it be? I mean, if God's love can become incarnate, if God's love can become flesh in the person of Jesus, then maybe God's love can become a part of our flesh and bones as well. Maybe the love that we absorb drawing on the river of grace can then result in the fruit that we offer the world. Of course, why would we want to do that? The poem says that it's because we want to be happy. The poem, Psalm 1, reads as if answering the question, what must I do to be happy? And the answer, 
Happy are those who delight in the law of God. In my very first sermon of 2021, I talked about the sort of happiness the psalmist means. And now on this, the last sermon of 2021, I want to remind you what I said then, although I'm sure you remember it vividly. I described two sorts of happiness. There is what Aristotle called hedonic happiness, which is a feeling, a pleasant feeling, a sensation or momentary pleasure, a happiness that's highly dependent on circumstances outside oneself, something making me happy. And those who seek that sort of happiness are easily manipulated as consumers and followers. The other sort of happiness, the happiness that Psalm 1 is talking about, is what Aristotle calls eudaimonic happiness. It is this lasting sense of well-being that comes from living a good and meaningful and worthy life. It's a happiness that starts within as one seeks to be true to one's core identity and live out one's core values. I recently posted on Facebook a quote by the singer with the stage name Nightbird that perfectly expresses the second form of happiness. The circumstances of the singer would cause many misery, for she has been living with and fighting cancer. She was introducing her song, It's Okay, and said this, You can't wait for life to stop being hard before finding a reason to be happy. That's my favorite quote of a pandemic year. But the quote doesn't go far enough for the poet of Psalm 1. And speaking of happiness, his interest is not only in the happiness of the individual, his interest is also in the happiness of others who can enjoy the fruit that is produced. If Aristotle says, live out your core identity, the poet is saying, Live out a core identity formed by God. If Aristotle says, live according to core values, the poet is saying, live according to values that reflect God's will. You see, the poet is concerned about decisions that are made and actions taken. He says they must not be like those who take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. Who is that? Who is the poet speaking of here? The psalm doesn't give any specifics about who those are who take the path that sinners tread. But no worries. The prophet Isaiah is more than happy to fill in the blanks. Spend just a little bit of time reading the first 39 chapters of Isaiah and you'll quickly come up with the great sins that Isaiah sees in Israel. They are injustice, oppression, and a lack of concern for those in need. Isaiah even describes people of means and power in Israel who are callous and uncaring over the plight of those who are unable to resist their exploitations. He even describes those who are jacked up because they have successfully plundered, oppressed, or cheated. But Isaiah 11, though, is a poem of hope. Sitting as it does in the midst of prophecies of judgment, the chapter is like this beautiful flower that's blooming in the desert. He sees a day when the arc of history that bends towards justice finally finds its end. 
Now, to fully appreciate the passage's vision of hope, you need to remember that context of judgment that surrounds it. Preceding the ark of justice is this axe of judgment. The prophecy begins as if the warning of judgment of the previous nine chapters has already taken place, that Israel has fallen already, that the king has been removed from his throne. The tree of Israel has been felled, leaving nothing but a stump. And it will have happened, not as some might naively think, that a more powerful nation overran a weaker Israel, just as the powerful in Israel have overrun the poor and the weak. The tree fell because of internal rot. The tree had not absorbed the word of God, but instead absorbed the ways of power and greed, with the resulting fruit being, as Isaiah describes it, market manipulation, exploitation, and social conditions that encourage poverty and want. And then, in assuming that the axe has already done its work, the prophecy of hope begins. Out of this stump of Jesse, there's a sign of new life that grows a shoot. And this shoot will become a king with wisdom and understanding, with the spirit of counsel and might, of knowledge and trust in God. The new king will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. That is, he's not going to rule from a place of self-interest and gratification. The king will use his authority and power and privilege to bear good fruit in the world to balance the scales of power in the marketplace. No, even to tilt the scales toward justice, toward the poor and meek, toward mercy, toward compassion, toward peace, the lion, lion with the lamb. And this prophecy of hope is not just for Israel, it is for all the world, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not all scripture is created equal. You need to know that Psalm 1 and Isaiah 11 became much beloved passages for the people of Israel who saw the nations of Israel and then Judah fall and who then lived for so many years in exile in the hope that God will send a leader, will send a Messiah to bend the ark away from judgment and toward peace. Their metaphor that they share, their metaphor of a tree bearing good or bad fruit was a gift that kept on giving. It became a part of the canon of Israel. It became a phrase that everyone repeated. It certainly informed the preaching of John the Baptist when he called for Israel's repentance, saying, bear fruits worthy of repentance, because even now the axe is laying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the metaphor certainly informed the preaching of Jesus when he spoke of trees bearing good and bad fruit and when he made a harsh point by cursing a fig tree for not bearing fruit. So let's go back to where we started. Happiness. That second form of happiness. Let's now consider this. The poet of Psalm 1, the prophet of Isaiah 11, and the Messiah who is Jesus, they all want for us to be happy in a way that 
that second sense of happiness that's hard to understand. They want for us what we often say that we want for ourselves, that we want this good quality of life. Well, actually, though that's what we say, I think they would put it differently. Considering that the emphasis is on bearing fruit, I think what they really want from us is a good quality of living. I say that today because when we talk about quality of life, we usually are talking about what we want for ourselves. Am I healthy? Am I in a lot of pain? Am I mentally sharp? Do I have financial security? Can I afford to do what I want to see the places that I want to see? Do I have a job? Do I enjoy my work? Do I have friends? Am I loved? Am I happy? The poet and prophet and Jesus in calling for good fruit, in calling for a quality of living, would ask those same kind of questions, but they would ask them in a different way. They would ask, if I am healthy, God be blessed, am I contributing to the health of others? Am I helping to address and ease pain in the world? Am I seeing and responding to those who have mental or financial anxiety? Am I helping others move from surviving to possibly thriving? Am I serving those who are in a position of serving me? Am I building community? Am I serving justice? Am I spreading love? Am I helping others to be happy? They ask the questions in these ways because happy are those who bear fruit, not just who absorb from the streams that are beside them. Happy are those who bear fruit. Happy are those who are concerned about the happiness of all. Happy are those who are concerned about laws and markets and customs and social practice. Happy are those who are concerned about communal health and food distribution. Happy are those who are concerned that power and privilege, which so easily can be abused, is leveraged instead to help build and then protect a just society. The poet, the prophet, and Jesus are saying to us, happy are those who think not just about their own well-being, but want the well-being for the world. Happy are those who are shaped by the word of God and who look to follow the Messiah, who is the word of flesh among us. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.